Greetings and welcome everyone to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dogbound West in Orange County, California. Hope you've been enjoying our return to the internet waves here. I certainly have. Uh, we'll have a ton of good stuff this week. I've got Brendan Leistra on this episode. I've got Pete Smith and Matt Waldman in a couple of other conversations that I will post shortly thereafter. There will be a, a veritable cornucopia of Browns and football-related content, a lot of it quarterback-driven, so I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll click on each of them, enjoy them, shoot us a review if you feel so inclined, feedback always welcome, questions always welcome. You can find me at FTBL Sickness on Twitter, you can find the podcast at The Browns Note. Like I said, this episode is going to be Brendan Leister, and we have been reacting, Brendan is just off vacation, he was in Sedona, Arizona. Lovely, a lovely vacation spot. If you ever get the, if you have the means, we highly recommend it. Um, but we talked about a bunch of different things. We talked about this flurry of trades that the Browns' new front office put together in the last day or so. Got a little bit of in-depth reaction from Brendan on each one. We talked about a few of the questions that you guys lobbed him over Twitter. So there are a bunch of those, and we just kicked around some of our general football thoughts. So. With so much content coming, I'm going to leave the extended rants for future episodes. I'm sure they'll give me reason to do so at the draft. One way or another, this is the Browns. They will eventually find a way to drive me insane. And with that, we turn to this episode's conversation with Brendan Leister on the Browns Note Podcast. Joined by my man, Brendan Leister from the heart of Ohio. You can find him at Brendan Leister on Twitter. He's, of course, my regular partner in crime on this podcast, and we haven't gotten yet to react um, together to all of these uh, all of these crazy moves in this offseason. And, you know, it's funny to me how often we have, over the past several years, been able to chat about um, all the really exciting things the Browns are doing between... January and August, <laughs> and <laughs> and conversely, all the really you know boring and abominable things they do between September <laughs> and December. Um, but I'll say this: they made it interesting today. Some moves. Obviously, John Dorsey is not afraid to target some things and make them happen. I, you know, I'm glad he didn't give up on any of the you know first rounders or second rounders. In this year's draft, he did improve next year's draft a little bit. So, uh, again, I keep coming back to with Dorsey and the new regime and all that. Look, it's not clear to me yet that John Dorsey doesn't more or less intend to try to execute a plan similar in this season and maybe in the next season to what the previous regime had set in motion. I mean... Some of this stuff, maybe it wouldn't have been exactly the same thing, for example, but some mid-round pick sacrifice, and I understand there's value to those picks, but like with the Tyrod Taylor move to me, this is, let's, let's do that one first because quarterback's what matters in football. And, and to me, look, giving up number 65 overall hurts. I, I loved that pick in this draft. There's going to be there, – there is no question – those are going to be some really good players at that pick. I feel like there's probably some more action coming, and so we should probably withhold judgment on what all happens. But looking at it today from what we've seen, um, here's what I think about that trade. It's a lot to give up because you're really, you've got them for a year, basically, is the way you're looking at that. And you're, I assume we're still taking a quarterback at the number one position, right? And so the idea behind Tyrod Taylor is, whether you believe in mentorship or not, I don't care. Let's set that aside for a moment. It's, number one, here's a guy who protects the ball, who can play, who could certainly keep most rookies off the field. It's going to take a special rookie who is prepared to play better than rookie-level football to get him off the field because this is a team that is not now run by someone who's prepared to be patient. At least that's all indication so far. And so for me... Again, with the backdrop of, I, I do think the fairest criticism of Sashi Brown's regime was the way the quarterback position was handled on the whole. Without getting into any one particular discussion, you do have to hold the GM accountable for that. And so when I see a Tyrod Taylor come into that room, I think, well, 
that room just got about a thousand percent better just with one guy because here's a guy we know can go in and play football at an, at a competent NFL level whether you, whatever else you think about him this is a guy who's not going to embarrass you on the field um, and had they merely had that last year I'm not sure Sashi Brown's fired you know what I'm saying so I think I think I think Tyrod Taylor is in light of all the circumstances, taking it all in its totality, I think that's about as well as you could have done for a veteran, whatever you want to call it, stopgap, competition, uh, bridge, friggin' Band-Aid, whatever it is, that's about as well as you could have done for that position, and I'm actually excited about what he can bring to the offense. Yeah, it seems like they were looking for a guy to play for one year. So kind of bridge that gap until the quarterback that they take at the top of the draft is ready to play. And I think after Alex Smith got traded and it seemed like Alex Smith didn't want to go for, go to Cleveland for a, re, for a year. So that wasn't really a great fit. So once he got traded to Washington, I think Tyrod Taylor was probably the best guy available. My concern leading up to that trade was always if they sign McCarron, they sign one of these other guys there's a chance that the number one pick is going to beat him out. Like there's a chance of that. And I know that that sounds good to a point because, you know, we're all excited to see whoever that is play. Ideally you want him to sit, wait, learn. You did mentor and Matt Flynn. You wanted, exactly. Sign, you wanted to sign somebody who could keep somebody off, off the field. Exactly. You don't want another Tom Savage Deshaun Watson situation. You don't want, Trubisky, Glennon, Russell Wilson, Matt Flynn, Bortles, Henny. I mean, these are all situations where the team uses all of their reps during training camp, expecting that veteran quarterback to be their guy. And then, you know, early in the season or late in camp, that young rookie quarterback beats that guy out. And then it's a lot of reps wasted. So I think Tyrod Taylor is good enough without a doubt to keep the rookie on the bench um, I mean, he just took the Bills to the playoffs. Like, that's a big deal. The Bills didn't go to the playoffs forever. That, like, this isn't some joke quarterback. He knows how to play winning football. Yeah, again, Huge you part can of, tell me QB wins don't matter, but that team was not all that different. And he was the quarterback. Yeah, it's, you know. Yeah, like, he, he protects the football. And that, that was a huge problem this past year, as we both know. I think Kaiser threw, what, twice as many picks as he did touchdowns, I believe. So, I mean, get down to the red zone, throw an interception. Tyrod Taylor throws next to no interceptions. He takes care of the football, gets outside the pocket, makes plays. Um, he can throw the ball. I, from what I understand, I think he doesn't make a ton of plays down the field. But like I said, he protects the football at least. And when you have guys like well, Josh Gordon. Some of that's dictated by what you got. And, and yeah. they, ran a, oh, yeah. they ran a running heavy scheme. They had LaShawn McCoy to lean on and wisely so did. Um, I, I think I think the interesting thing is to sort of project forward and think, well, I mean, if you have a quarterback who can merely effectively distribute, there are guys on this offense who we know can do some things. If you've got yeah. Gordon, if you've got Coleman, uh, if Najoku continues to develop as he did in the second half of, of his rookie season. Uh, if Duke Johnson is permitted to touch the football sufficiently. <laughs> you know, in theory, the cockpit's not so bad. The offensive line should be relatively effective. So a guy with some professional experience who has led a winning team, a playoff team, as you say, despite the misguided decision to start. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> Nathan Peterman for a, a week yeah. and give up five interceptions to the Los Angeles Rams. I mean... I'm not here to get anybody all worked up about the Tyrod Taylor era. And no, I don't think this makes them a wild card contender or a division champion contender. No, nothing like that. But I do think it, it serves two purposes. It immediately and vastly improves the quarterback room. It keeps the rookie off the field, which to me, again, we've been over this ad nauseum on this podcast. I know I used to rail about it on the other podcast I did. I, I'm of the opinion that, there is no rookie quarterback who would not benefit from time to sit and learn. Now, that's not the same thing as saying nobody can come in and play right away. I'm just saying I think if you get a few reps to look at, that's going to help you. If you get a few months to adjust 
to being a grown-up in a very grown-up world, in a new city, in a new job, where they expect you to be a day-to-day, no summer vacation, no spring break professional. Uh, And granted, it's the NFL, so take that for all it's worth. But successful quarterbacks are not expected to be anything other than that. And that's right away. And so when you're you're talking about taking a 20- or 21-year-old kid, to me it's obvious that any of them would benefit at least a little. Whether they need to or not, leave that question aside. Who cares? You can decide for yourself. Um, But the idea that you're in a position to do that to me is a pretty valuable thing. Yeah, and and he also, another thing about him is he backed up Flacco and they won the Super Bowl. So he's he's been in the backup role before. He was he's a backup for four years before he left Super as a free Bowl agent. Winning quarterback, Tyrod Taylor. <laughs> All I'm saying is he's been in that role before. He's learned from a starting quarterback before he got his chance. And I just I think that whoever is in the room with him will benefit. And I also wouldn't be surprised to see them sign another veteran in free agency. Just another low cost, you know, vet guy that, that hasn't yeah, yeah. It's been around, but hasn't played great, like a Matt Castle AJ type. for a two and a three. <laughs> exactly. I definitely. No matter what else we can say about Tyrod Taylor in this trade, I will say, Tyrod Taylor with a year on his deal for three point one is a a significantly superior deal to AJ McCarron for a two and a three, where he becomes a free agent a month after you give that up. So, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, you know, you can decide who didn't want to make that trade and who did. That's sort of <laughs> up to you, our listening audience. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, yeah. So that wasn't the only deal. Obviously, there's been a lot of activity. Um, let's see. Let me make sure I get the picks right. The Jarvis Landry trade. I just actually recorded another pod that will be out sometime in the next week or so with Pete Smith. And we talked about the Jarvis Landry move. He is, I'm sure you caught it, he's not a, not a fan of the move. He vocally thinks Landry's not much of a player. Um, he had a number of, you know, film and statistical observations that, you know, they are what they are. Facts are facts. But I also understand with a guy like Landry, he feels to me like a, a beauty is in the eye of the beholder kind of a, a player. And I think when you put a few connections together, it's interesting to note, and I'm going to blank on his name, but the new wide receiver coach um, was Landry and Beckham's wide receiver coach at LSU. So I think there's probably at least some thought that that connection will matter. Um, And then there's the possibility that they don't actually sign this guy to an an extension. And what you're looking at is somebody who is incentivized to perform uh, and for whom you might at worst get a compensatory pick. So there's all that baked into it. But they gave up a fourth-round pick in 2018 this year and a seventh-round pick next year. I can't say I care much about seventh-round picks, although we all know that any pick could become the right guy for the right position at the right moment. Um, Tell me your thoughts on this move and and sort of how it fits into – I mean, I I personally don't think it's a major impact on what else they might do at wide receiver in in the next couple of months. I I guess I sort of expect them still – to make a run at Terrell Pryor, which won't be a difficult run, and then I expect them to ad- to address it with at least one guy in the draft. They've got so many picks, it would almost be foolish not to, um, to to keep a pipeline coming. Even if you were to go out and sign a bunch of guys that you felt could play right now, it would be stupid not to stock a pipeline of younger, talented guys, um, whoever they might be. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think he fits really well in the slot. Uh, I know he's not popular in some areas of Twitter, like you mentioned with Pete, but he clearly has great hands. He's always had great ball skills. He can go up and get the football. He can make an inaccurate quarterback look a little more accurate than he is. And uh, that's always been something that has stuck out to me with him ever since I studied him coming out of LSU. Clearly not a burner. He's not going to get down the field on people, but I mean, with that wide receiver group, do they really need that from the slot? I think more of what you're looking for is what Andrew Hawkins gave him a few years ago where, you know, quick slot receiver, tough, runs the routes, creates separation inside, gets the ball, gets yards after the catch. Uh, I mean, he's not going to be like a burner after the catch, but I think he's tough. He's going to break tackles here and there. And hopefully with better quarterback play, because – 
we're hoping that the Browns find their quarterback soon or Tyrod Taylor gives them better quarterback play than maybe he was getting in Miami this past year. And, and even with Tannehill at times, hopefully he performs better, but I mean, he caught how many passes over the past four years, like 400 balls or something. And and yeah, I mean, he's, he's clearly a football player. Gordon. He didn't have Corey Coleman or David Njoku and, and, Although I yeah. got a lot of respect for Gase as a as a scheme coach, I'm I'm not sure they had really threatening personnel to where I know how to fit Landry into any one picture or not. I, I guess I feel like to me it's sort of an open question. It may be that a lot of these criticisms are pretty valid and that he's just sort of a, a player who is skilled but limited, or it may be that he has not yet reached his full sort of thriving potential, and we'll see kind of how it shakes out. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a tough. He's clearly a tough NFL receiver. He's gonna fill a role kind of like Heinz Ward did, like late part of his career you know, for the Steelers. I saw that, but okay, late part of his career. I saw somebody compare him to Heinz Ward today, and I was like, hey, no. yeah, slow down. <laughs> Heinz no, Ward was I a think, different kind of athlete now. Yeah, I agree with that 100. I'm talking like late career when he was catching a ton of balls, possession receiver in the slot. He was still a very good player late in his career. I mean, Heinz Ward was a hell of a player. So I'm talking like not him at his prime, but a little bit you're later talking, on. You're talking physical, dirty blocking Heinz Ward. Yeah, and Jarvis Landry is a guy that'll block his ass off yep. as well. So yeah, I mean, it's a tough guy. I think he could give them an edge in the locker room with the culture. I mean. Clearly, some people think he was bad for the culture in Miami. Some people don't think that. They scoff at that. So I think it really just depends on the locker room, and we'll see how he fits in with the Browns. But like you said, it's one year. He's incentivized to play great. And and he also, I want to add this in too, he, he filled that role he played in Miami extremely well. Like he did what they asked him to do. He ran the routes they asked him to run, and he caught the ball when the ball was thrown to him. So... I don't think we can really hold that against him and how we evaluate him and project his performance going forward. But I'm just really, I'm honestly, I'm excited to see him play beside Josh Gordon. I mean, Josh Gordon will probably play X um, that's split end and Landry will play in the slot beside him. So I'm just excited to see that tandem. And I think, I think it's a hell of an upgrade over Richard Higgins, for example. So I, I look forward to it, and they can clearly afford him. And I don't think a, yeah, the a 2018 fourth-round pick. And, and yeah, 2018 fourth. I thought it was totally reasonable. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. I think it's reasonable. I mean, people can hate it and all that, and that's understandable. And maybe he won't be a great player for them, but I think he's he's a big upgrade. And, and it's, a, it's nice getting another veteran in the locker room that's been around the NFL. I think that should benefit them. And as we talked about upgrading the quarterback room, <laughs> there was another trade yesterday, and that was the 2017 number 52 overall pick to the Green Bay Packers for corner slash maybe safety, question mark, Demarius Randall, former Arizona State Sun Devil, uh, Deshaun Kaiser. Off to Green Bay. I'll just tell you that my reaction to that is good for him. Um, clearly, it wasn't going to work here. Those of us who get to talk to people occasionally, who do get to talk to people in the building, look, it's not a big secret that neither Hugh nor Deshaun Kaiser really had a lot of affection for one another. And it's probably also pretty clear that Hugh was the only, maybe not the only reason, but Hugh was probably instrumental in getting him there in the first place because there's, like you said a couple of weeks ago, there was nothing analytically suggestive about Deshaun Kaiser's college profile coming into the NFL. There was nothing that any metric-based analysis would lead you to believe, hey, here's a guy who's going to really have success. So all that stuff pointed against him. So if you believe analytics was driving the front office side, well, then you can draw your own conclusions about how it happened. I'm not really – the Kaiser pick is one that I don't feel like I'm all that well certain on how it happened or who wanted it or what, or whether it was just sort of an organizational swing, in which case I thought it was totally reasonable in the first place. So I don't get all worried about it. But at any rate, I think you and I would agree that last year was enough for us to see that 
if he's ever going to be a successful NFL quarterback, it's not going to be anytime soon. And the thing for him is go away, work for a little while, ideally work behind somebody that knows what the hell they're doing and with some good coaching. And in a couple, three years, maybe you've got something. And he'll still be a really young dude in a couple, three years. And there's no denying there's a lot of physical ability in that cat. And so to me, perfect spot for him, but it was the perfect spot for Brett Hundley a couple years ago too. And we all saw what Brett Hundley ended up doing this year when he played. So my skepticism remains. The Browns get Demarius Randall. Um, I guess my, my thinking on it is I, I sort of am with the crowd that is, that is speculating that he's going to be tried at safety, uh, at the free safety spot, however you want to define the free safety spot these days, especially with the way we don't quite know what he's going to do with the other <laughs> safety spot. Um, but I guess I, I kind of lean that way just because he was such a ball hawk um, and because I feel like their corners were relatively productive and they're going to have a chance to take another one pretty high if they want to. And we don't know what Howard Wilson's going to bring if he's back healthy. So I think there's a lot of, to me, the corner position is one that is just totally in flux that we'll have to see how it all shakes out. But the Demarius Randall move to me, there are people in Green Bay who will say he was our best corner. And there are people in Green Bay who are saying, thank God that guy's gone. What, if anything, have you seen and, and how do you think it fits? Yeah, I just remember when he came out of Arizona State, I, I thought he was a pretty instinctive player. He played fast. He got his hands on the football. Um, he, I believe he had six interceptions in two years at Arizona State playing safety. And um, he also, I think he took a couple of those back for touchdowns. So he was clearly making plays. You know, that's what got him drafted in the first round by the Packers. I think they're, I mean, just from what I understand, it seems like people in the front office in Green Bay, some people that might be in Cleveland now, um, seems like they may have thought he was a safe, he should be a safety in the NFL. And then the coaching staff liked him as a corner. So there may have been a disconnect there. You know, you don't typically hear about that with an organization like the Packers. But, but, but it's notable that all those guys left. That it wasn't mm-hmm. just one dude that got a job and it, they all left and went to one place, which leads you to believe that maybe there was a little bit of a fracture in Green Bay. And yeah. that opens up all sorts of questions that we can discuss over the next couple of months. But keep going. Demarius Randall. Yeah, definitely. And so playing corner the past few years, it seems like he had a lot of ups and downs. I mean, he makes those really splashy interceptions. I think he's had a couple pick sixes. Um, I believe, does he have 10 interceptions in his career to this point? I believe in three years playing corner. So yeah, that's a lot. I think earlier I saw he had like 32 pass breakups. So clearly he gets his hands on the ball a lot. Um, I'm just interested to see how they use him. I, I definitely don't want to see him playing 20, 25 yards deep. I'd much rather see him playing much closer to the ball. Um, not, not like in the box or anything, but just as a normal NFL free safety, but I'm looking forward to seeing how they use him. And I think they can use talent anywhere in the secondary, whether it's corner free safety, um, I like how I like things that Jason McCourty showed last year. I think Jamar Taylor took a little bit of a step back from the year before, probably. And I still like body Calhoun a lot, but if he plays corner and, and hopefully Howard Wilson comes along as well, but if he plays corner, hopefully he, you know, upgrades the talent in the room and it looks like he does on paper. And if he plays free safety, then he gives them a true free safety on the roster that has experience at that position in college and, was a first-round prospect coming out. So I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, trading Deshaun Kaiser for Demarius Randall, we'll see how Randall pans out and everything. But to get yeah, but a proven... Your skepticism on, on Kaiser is why you think that's a no-brainer, ultimately. Well, it's part of the reason. But, I mean, they did just trade for, for Tyrod Taylor, and everybody expects them to draft a quarterback at the top of the draft. I only know of about four or five people that think Kaiser's better than all these quarterbacks in this draft. So four or five people, like, I'm not, that's no exaggeration too. like next to nobody thinks he's better than the top quarterbacks in this class. So I don't see a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't see any reason to think Kaiser should stick on this roster as the third string guy or anything. Like I said, I think they'll probably bring in a veteran. If not, like I mentioned on here before, maybe hang on to Kevin Hogan, who seems like a solid, you know, solid quarterback room guy as the third quarterback. But I just don't think there was really a place for him. And 
And like I said, it's a no, I just think it's a no brainer to get a corner or a, a defensive back with 10 interceptions, 30 plus plays on the football, bring him to a new environment and hopefully you can turn it around. Yeah. I mean, we shall see what happens. Uh, and then the other deal, of course, Danny Shelton, I love Danny Shelton. I loved him at Washington. I love what he did for the run defense, but I, look, this is what happens. Um, Danny Shelton's a good player in the role for which he is suited. I would be the first to concede that he hasn't come along as much as I would have thought he could as an interior pass rush threat. So, you know, it didn't happen. And four years is enough to figure that out. And so if the calculation is, here's a guy who's really effective as a two-down run stopper, but number one, we're not running that 3-4 stuff anymore, and number two, his fifth-year option is going to be awfully expensive. Let's get what we can for him now. And to their credit, I don't think Dorsey did a bad job of sort of getting a decent pick out of it. He's going to get a third-round pick from the Patriots, which more or less is a fourth-round pick, right, once you get all the compensatories through the way you're dealing with a fourth-round pick. And so, you know, it is what it is. You're certainly you're not selling real high on Danny Shelton, but it's probably better than you would have done if you waited. Yeah, I've always liked Danny Shelton. I kind of learned from that too because I wanted him for the Browns. But um, I just I don't think that you should take a primary primarily a guy that's a run stopper in the first round as a nose tackle. I mean, in today's NFL, it's all about sub packages. It's all about up front. You need four plus great pass rushers. You need tons of dudes I, I on the back end that they can cover. Expected him to be merely a two down player, or I doubt that would have been the pick. I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'm underestimating the old schoolness of that that particular regime. But I suspect they thought they would get more than the Browns have to date from Danny Shelton in any more third down capacity. Yeah, I agree. That's probably the case. I think he did have eight or nine sacks coming out of Washington that last year. So for that size, when you project ahead, you hope, oh, this guy hopefully can give us that interior push. And I agree. He didn't, he definitely didn't bring that for the Browns. And I mean, I tweeted the other day that I, I hoped I never see him on the, on the field again for another pass down. And thankfully I don't have to see that anymore. He He's clearly a much, much better fit uh, with the Patriots. Um, oh, he's going to be a total but, animal there because every snap he gets <laughs> is going to be him doing exactly what he should be doing. Exactly. But for the Browns, I think they're just they're looking for penetrators and and like I've said I believe on here in the past as well I hope Ogan Joby moves to nose penetration, Brendan that's what everybody's looking for <laughs> Yeah I'm looking forward to Ogan Joby uh being the starting nose tackle I think he he can be a true three down nose um I know a lot of people like him as a three technique I think his highest upside is as a nose tackle you move him in over the center and then hopefully if what do they do, do what is what is Ogan Joby's specialty? Well, in the run game, he's extremely stout. That was one of the first things that stood out to him. I mean, it's really hard to move him. But then in the pass game, he he defeats double teams like he's a very good penetrator. It's a so, this thing more than a power thing, but he's really strong. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think he has a ways to go with his bull rush as a pass rusher, his I would first say. step is but, ridiculous. Exactly. And in the run game, I think he gets he's able to move guys and get penetration in the backfield, not only shooting gaps, but also just with brute strength, moving one on one (laughs) shooting gaps, penetration. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Too much Beavis and Butthead in the the history books. Um, You know, but it's it's a bummer to lose Shelton. But I to me, I that's one of those kind of things that you could. I guess just sort of see coming, you know, it is what it is. Um, Yeah. And I think they can, I think they can fill that role with cheaper players. You know, like I'm saying with Ogan Joby, I think he brings a similar game in the run game, you know, with that stoutness, he's really difficult to move, but in the past game, he's such an upgrade as a rusher because of his athletic ability that it's just, it's a no brainer to get him on the field more because he wasn't on the field enough in the past. And hopefully this leads to what I've been talking about a lot and hopefully targeting Bradley Chubb at four. And if you have three of those really freakish athletic defensive ends and sub packages, like they did at times last year with miles Garrett, 
you move one of those guys inside over a guard and nowadays i mean you're in sub packages basically two out of every three downs so those are starting football players for you it's you're starting basically three defensive ends in that situation and then you can have ogan Joby or brantley or whoever inside over the center so that gives you four really athletic pass rushers up front that's what i'd like to see them do and hopefully this move leads to more of that just finding more guys that can defeat blocks that are great athletes up front so you tweeted out tonight a sort of a mailbag offer opportunity for the the audience of the browns note podcast you asked for questions we got a, a number of them and so i'm looking at them here on my other mobile device here and so i figured we could take a couple one of them is from uh, brandon king at bk king too <laughs> and so we're each going to get a question here uh, and due to my previous Pearl Jam references on the podcast, the question is, what is my favorite Pearl Jam song of all time? An important question, a difficult question. It's mostly mood-driven, and it prob- the, the, an- the truest answer is that it's probably something different every other moment. But what I'll say is the one that I sort of have the most nostalgia and affection for is the one that made me realize that this was a band I was going to listen to for the rest of my life. It's a song called Release. It was the last track on the first record. I heard it when I was 16 years old. I probably had no fucking idea about the stuff that was going on in that song. Um, but anyway, that remains. They still play it to open songs occasionally, or to open shows occasionally, and it's just a kick-ass, very slow, um, almost dirge kind of a song. But man, what a vocal. Anyway, so that's that one. And then Brandon asks, who is the number one pick? Now, I assume he means who does he think or who do we think they're going to take? But let's, let's answer both questions. Let's do who do we think they're going to take? Who do you think they should take? Um, your answer may be the same. Am I guessing correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. Uh, I think they will take Sam Darnold. I think they should take him. I kind of laid out the reasons on a past podcast, and I think we'll get into that a lot more on a future podcast. Yeah, we're going to do the case for, for Sam Darnold very shortly. It'll hopefully be this week. I'm going to bug the shit out of Brendan to get it done. Yep. Yeah, so that's my pick. I think, how about uh, yours? Well, you know I think I would take Josh Rosen. So that's what I think they should do. I'm not here to really argue against several of these other guys because I think there's a lot to like about Sam Darnold. I think there's a lot to like about Baker Mayfield, and I feel like my qualifications limit me somewhat to really differentiating. And there are thi- there, it's a different, you know, each guy's different. And they're individuals, and it's going to depend on what you want and what you like and what you think each guy can do and how you project them forward. And if you don't get to meet them, you probably shouldn't cling to your precious little evaluation too much either way. But that being said... I would take Josh Rosen because I think he's super accurate and I think they've got a lot of weapons. And if what you want, and I think he is going to be a whiteboard machine. And so when you've got those three things, um, what you might sacrifice uh, vis-a-vis, say, Sam Darnold in terms of um, admitted freakish chaos management, which is what I would say about um, Sam Darnold, or what you might say about Baker Mayfield, which is, Look, he sees the whiteboard too. I don't see. I, I, I've look. I'm, I'm empathetic about all the concerns watching their offense because I don't know what to do with it either. But I also think, I mean, if it were that easy, everybody'd be doing it. And so there's sort of a, there's sort of a. Uh, for me, I find him like you said last last time we spoke. I find him difficult to know exactly where to put him, but I find it hard to bet against him. And so, um, you know, with all that. I think they should take Josh Rosen, and I think they're going to take Sam Darnold. <laughs> that's what I think. So that's that question. Um, let's see. I'll let you take this one. This is from Western Subs, at Western Subs. I don't know. Is that an Ohio establishment? Lifelong Cleveland sports fan. Could be. He's got a Ty Webb web quote. That can't be bad. If, don't, <laughs> if, if the Browns don't trade down, should it most likely be a combo of quarterback Barkley Chubb, or he thinks it should be a, a, a combo of quarterback at one and then Barkley Chubb or Maker or whatever at four. What are the options like at 33 and 35? How far into it have you gotten, B? Do you, do you know most of those guys? 
I mean, not a ton of them, honestly. I know that. Um, we'll pick I know a couple the, of positions and then we can. Start yeah. Because I know some of these guys. I mean, if you think about, like, let's assume for a moment that they don't take Barkley up there. Yeah, I, I do think it's smart to assume that one of those second round picks is a back. Yeah, and it might be 64. That that was a point I was trying to make today, too, is it doesn't necessarily have to be 33 or 35. It could it could even be 64, but but I agree. Running 64, I think. There are a lot of backs yeah. here, and they're not all going yeah. that early. And it could be that fourth round pick, too. I mean, it's just really hard to say because there's so many good running backs in this draft, as you touched on with Matt Waldman in that awesome last podcast that got me through the flight yesterday. But um, Oh, did you have a long flight back from Sedona? <laughs> Poor baby. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so running backs in that mix. I think um, I think defensive tackle is going to be in that mix too, especially if, uh, if Hurst from Michigan falls. I could absolutely see them yeah, taking him at 33, yeah. 35. Yeah. yeah. Plug him in at three technique and you're ready to go. I mean, that's my view on him. I think he's a lot. Actually, he's a lot like um, he's a lot like Mike Daniels from the Packers. I think his game is very much like him. That's a big compare. Mike Daniels is a hell of a player now. Yeah, they play really similar, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah, fun, fun. Yeah, I, I mean, you look at 33 and 35 to me. The answer to that question from my perspective is. I mean, it's a very simple cliche to say best player available, but to me, you're looking at, let's assume for a moment that they've gone quarterback at one. At four, I think it's one of two things, personally. I think they're either going to take their favorite defender or they're going to trade out of that pick. Maybe they trade out of that pick for a couple of first-rounders from Buffalo who comes up to get a quarterback, for example. Buffalo has 21 and 22 would if you ask me, would I take twenty one and twenty two and another pick or something for four? Uh, I mean, probably to be honest, um, but I'm stupid like that, and I don't I, like honestly. I feel like the best player on the board at four is going to be Quentin Nelson, and they don't need Quentin Nelson. No, you know what I mean. That's that's kind of how yeah. I see it. And if Chubb's on the board, I'm down totally. If yeah. they feel that strongly about some other defender, cool. But I. For me, I'd rather have 21 and 22 myself than Saquon Barkley at four. So, Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, you say of course, but you know damn well that at least half the people listening to this think we're complete idiots, and that's fine. Well, Look, well that's Saquon fine. Barkley's but it's exciting, but I want all those picks. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, I, I have to say it again. Waldman made a great point about how people view running backs as well, about comparing them kind of to superheroes big wide receivers comparing those to superheroes as well. I think people just in general overvalue those positions way more than what is realistic. You know, when the actual football starts in the fall and I even tweeted about this earlier, the point he made about Reggie Bush was a stoop. It's different to me in both positions. They, they overvalue the running back occasionally. And then the wide receiver to me, they have unreasonable expectations of how soon it should happen. I think they're two different problems to me, but I could be wrong about that. Well, it's possible, but I think expecting that one guy to like change the complexion of your team or whatever, like that, it's just not really, it's not a realistic thing, but I would say another, uh, another position that should be in that mix at 33, 35 is probably offensive tackle. I think if, um, if, I might murder his name here, but McGlinchy, McGlinchley from uh, from Notre Dame. I, I, I could see him in that McGlinchy, mix. McGlinchey, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think there's a so, second L. I just think it's McGlinchey. McGlinchey, okay. So preparing for Joe Thomas to retire possibly in a year or two or, you know, even on yeah, Monday. You might call it a luxury pick, but look, you've got luxury picks, and that's a pretty important position. So Yeah, yeah. and they have a lot of picks. and. I would feel a lot better with an offensive lineman at 33 or 35 than I would at four. And especially since he has the experience playing offensive tackle, I don't like the idea of moving Batonio outside or moving Nelson outside if they were to take him at four, like you alluded to. So I much prefer McGlinchey in the second round. Um, other positions, obviously cornerback free safety or just safety. I think safety in general, like I really don't think, if you play a normal style defense 
And I know I'm the only person that thinks this in the world, but if you play a normal style of NFL defense, I think Jabril Peppers has a skill set. You can't can't just throw out a phrase like a normal style NFL defense without explaining what that means. Just playing a defense that doesn't have the free safety lining up in Timbuktu. That's that's what I'm getting at. A traditional set. Got it. Yeah, exactly. So the free safety isn't lining up in the parking lot. That's that's what I'm saying. He's not 20 to 30 yards deep. I think Jabril Peppers has a skill set where he can play normal free safety position. I'm not saying that he's best there necessarily, but I could see him being best there because he has range. And I think with experience at the position, he could develop those instincts and the awareness and learn learn the position. I mean, he never played there before before last year, and I, I saw him improve markedly. He, he had stretches of play that were really good. There's just no way. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think you can't say that they only need a free safety. I think it's it's possible that I know it wouldn't be popular, but I could see him fitting at free safety if they change the style of defense that they're running and took, like for example, Derwin James and put him at strong safety or. Minka Fitzpatrick could fit at strong safety as well. Um, I just think that people, I think it's important to be open-minded. That's, that's all I'm getting at. But I think there's a lot of ways that they could go at the top of the second round, defensive line, defensive back, running back, wide receiver. Um, yeah. Wide receiver, potentially if the right guys on the board, I'm not, I mean, I'm not wide receiver class is so deep that to me, all of those picks and well into the fourth round are totally up in the air. For a wide, it all could be a wide receiver. Any one of those picks could be a wide receiver. Yeah, and then offensive tackle because even back. with uh, all yeah, those, I said yeah, yeah, I said running back. Yeah, yeah anywhere in there. Um, all yeah, those. I guys, think really anything except quarterback because I expect a quarterback to be the first pick. I do too. Or and, or and I, again, I at be least the fourth if, pick. I wouldn't be surprised if they took another one later in the draft too. So they have. Yeah, so I agree picks, with that. It's just. I'm just saying not at 33 or 35, right. obviously. Oh, yeah. To be, no, and I don't, I don't think, think a tight this, end. Yeah, agreed. I don't think this is the draft where they're waiting for the quarterback to fall to them at 33. That's not what they're doing this year. Oh, that, that's no, not, absolutely that's not. this not. draft. I agree. Um, yeah. How about this question from our guy, Paul Spencer? How do you think Tyrod Taylor stacks up as a mentor and to the last two days give you a better sense of what John Dorsey might do in the draft room? The second question to me, the answer is I have no idea. No. Um, it maybe gives you some positional clarity on on what might be prioritized early in the draft, but beyond that, the answer is no, because most of this stuff that happened today or the last couple days or the last week by the time this gets posted, depending on my effectiveness, um, most of that stuff is very short-term. And so the answer to me is that no, it doesn't really affect the draft. It uh, other than it might allow him to draft for guys that he believes might take a year but can be developed, assuming he has that faith. Yeah, that's. I actually do have a pretty strong take on this. I think that with all those picks that they have in the first two rounds, they can they have the luxury more than any team that I've seen of taking a quarterback and sitting him for a year and not relying on him at all. Like, not only do you have the number one pick, you have the number four pick. Most teams only have a one top pick up there. So they're only relying on that one immediate impact you get a quarterback star. and a top five player. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So what I'm saying is the immediate impact can be taken at four. And that player that you take at number one, the quarterback, you can just sit him with no pressure. He doesn't need to see the field right it's away. And you're getting those someone created a situation whereby the Browns have walked themselves into a remarkable fucking luxury, isn't it? Yeah. And then, and then with 33, 35, 64, you're thinking those are three guys that, you know, these might not be starters because if you look at the roster now, they do have mostly, most of the starting positions are filled at this point. So even if those players aren't starters, they can be supplemental players, you know, complementary guys where they play a role. They're eased in. They're not necessarily asked to start or play an enormous role right away, which is beneficial. You see teams like Minnesota and the Bengals and these other great teams, the Steelers. I mean, good organizations generally, they bring these guys along slowly. So, I think they're in a great position. And after getting these three vets that we're all expecting them to play big roles and start, I mean, 
I think we all expect Randall, Landry, and Taylor. Oh, they better be. They're starting. all gonna. Otherwise, yeah, they're all gonna start. Otherwise, they were terrible deals. Yeah, exactly. They're all gonna start. They're all gonna play big roles. So those are all immediate impact contributors for those mid to late round picks that they traded. So Which look at it that way. You're already loaded with very recent first and second rounders, and you've got five more of them incoming this year. I, look, I agree. I think that's a reasonable way to execute. Even, again, I go back to I'm not entirely – I don't see any evidence yet that John Dorsey doesn't want to execute a plan that is all that dissimilar to what Sashi Brown had in mind. They might do it a little differently, but we don't have that evidence yet, and so I'll just kind of wait and see on that stuff. I mean, I agree with you. I think if you can parlay these – mid-round picks into immediate impact on a team where you are still even pricing that in, adding all kinds of young, supreme talent with those first two-round picks. I mean, I, look, that's hard to argue with from a philosoph- philosophical perspective, and I'd give this to Dorsey. He hasn't abandoned the idea that he wants to be, in a, in a forward-looking way, improving future drafts, which he did in the, in the Danny Shelton deal. He improved the 2019 draft. He got an additional third-round pick. It's not a huge pick, but that pick... It's valuable. It's a valuable pick, right. And yep. the, you know, that narrative that's gone around that you, know, you and I are never going to be able to rid the world of, but there, there appear to be two kinds of people when it comes to the quote-unquote Sashi Wars. It's those that understand that <laughs> Sashi's... And, and again, it might be a misnomer to just pin this all on Sashi as a philosophy because I think there's far too much skipping over that Paul D. Podesta got paid an awful lot of money to come here and design a philosophy. And so whose ever plan it was, it wasn't not Paul D. Podesta's plan to stock up these draft picks, but there's no way around this. You can't argue that they were only into stockpiling draft picks. They took three number one draft choices last year alone. They had 10 picks last year. They had 14 draft selections the year before, the most in the National Football League. They weren't just hoarding draft picks. David Njoku is a first-rounder. Jabril Peppers is a first-rounder. Miles Garrett's a superstar and a first-rounder. Those were all in one draft. They weren't just hoarding picks. You're all mad that they didn't take the quarterback Carson Wentz. Nobody in the building wanted to take Carson Wentz. Let's all get over it. Nobody in the building wanted to take Deshaun Watson. Enough. Let's get over it. This year was always going to be the kinds of stuff John Dorsey's doing. And so we might as well all be over it that it's not Sashi Brown executing it. But let's not forget to notice that so far, I don't think John Dorsey's doing anything that's all that out of the box compared to what I expected the existing regime to do. Do you? No, I agree with that. I think that the plan was always going to, it was going to eventually lead to more aggressive decisions. This was you know, the year, right? This was sort of yeah. the year. Yeah, of course. With with all the capital, I mean, it started with the Wentz trade where they started building up that 2018 draft capital even back then when they got that second rounder from Philadelphia. And then from there, it just kept building. And now here we are. There's tons of picks. And to kind of summarize the point i was making is just to simplify it they got three immediate impact players yesterday for mid-round picks and all that and you anticipate on the first two days of the draft they should get four immediate impact players four immediate impact and then one meaning the quarterback is not necessarily immediate got it exactly and one hopefully franchise quarterback that's twice as many immediate impact contributors as most people get on the first two days of the draft because you get one pick in the first round one pick in the second round generally so they're going to get on paper right now four immediate impact guys to me that's the argument to maybe you trade four for 21 and 22 and maybe somehow in there you get yourself another one for next year you know maybe not but there are a lot of ways to come out of there's an argument yeah there that's the thing there's an argument for it like i set against trading back in a draft where you're already drafting some guy who you think is going to be your franchise quarterback Uh, to me having a lot of draft picks is not the point the point is that having a lot of draft picks is yes, it's it's opportunities at players, but it's also flexibility. 
It's also the ability to move around when you need to and target specific players. And it's also, to me, that's the reason, by the way, that quarterback number one is such a foregone conclusion because the whole point of losing 31 games or however many they meant to lose was (laughs) let's have a lot of draft picks in case we don't have the number one overall pick so that we can go get it if we have to. And the only reason you have that mindset is for the quarterback. And so here they are. They actually have the number one draft pick and all the extra luxury. And so uh, to me, they're not going to just decide that their philosophy is different and do something stupid that is wasteful in their mind because they have a lot of it. That's not, I, I just don't think that's likely. Maybe with the salary cap in the first two years because you basically you can render early year money kind of meaningless when you've got as much money as the Browns do. But, I mean, just looking at this setup, there's a, there's a, there's a, they're still positioned for sustainable draft success. And so to me, it's nice that these are immediate contributors. I think the flip side of that is there's a reason every one of these guys was available. And then the other part is none of it matters if, number one, they don't properly identify a quarterback at one, and number two, they don't nail most of these draft picks. They got to do it. Yep. But at the end of the day, the quarterback is number one, as we've seen. I mean, and, if they get that right. Number two and number three and number four yep. and number five. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. How about this one? But this one, this one's more appropriate for you than for me. This is from our guy at Reverend Ruckus. SDR, how would you counter the metrics crowd who can point to Baker's crazy efficiency stats over three seasons and say he should be the slam dunk top quarterback overall? For me, I just I like to look at the offense and look at the context of what he was playing in. When you watch him, you see a lot of wide open receivers, a lot more than most other offenses that these quarterback prospects are playing in. And you have to have that context to properly evaluate those statistics and if a quarterback is largely standing in the pocket not getting not playing in chaos as much as some of the other quarterbacks might have been due to their offensive lines or their offensive situations and throwing to wide open receivers not having to play with quite the timing that some of the other quarterbacks had to play with because of their situations and the offenses just weren't scheming guys open as consistently as Oklahoma's offense was. Um, and then also another thing is his run game was exceptional. I believe that they might've had the number one most efficient run game in all of college football. So that really benefits a quarterback as well when it comes to defenses scheming against him. But I'm not going to say he's not talented. Like I said, on the last podcast, he's a talented guy. He makes really impressive plays from time to time, inside and outside structure. I think that it's going to be a projection with him just coming from that offense. Guys don't run wide open like that in the NFL. It's it's just the fact of the matter. He's going to have to learn to play with better timing. He's going to have to learn to throw with anticipation and make more of those faith throws where he's just he has faith that the receiver is going to break open on time before he lets go of the football. He likes to wait for guys to get open. So I think those stats are a little bit misleading based on the offense he played in, but I also give him a lot of credit for his mastery of that offense and the production he put up and leading that team to the playoffs. And to uh, answer Daniel Jeremiah's Twitter poll today about who would play better (laughs) in each (laughs) offense, I think that he would make Wyoming better and Josh Allen would make Oklahoma worse. You know what my favorite so response is? That's my that take on the situation. And I don't have the name in front of me or I would credit it, but we had a it's in my mentions if you want to find it. Someone came back to that and said Oklahoma would have an accurate quarterback starting over Josh <laughs> Allen. <laughs> that was a great yeah, that was a great reply. And it's definitely possible that he wouldn't have even been the starting quarterback for them. Yeah. I, I mean he didn't, I don't he get didn't the go Josh there Allen in the first place. I think most of us don't. That that yeah. I still have to study him. In I'll the, admit. In the circle, and and I can't say I've quote unquote studied him, but I've watched an awful lot. So, how about our guy Jack Duffin at Jack Duffin? Views on Tyrod, Tyrod, and impact on draft choices. I feel like we've probably covered that. How much do you? This is a good one. How much do you value a slot wide receiver in terms of cap space, and how important is that position in terms of winning games? 
Do you have a take on that or you just want me to answer? I mean, I bet Tom Brady has a take on it. Yeah, I I definitely think it's a really important position, just like all the other receiver positions. It really depends on the offense you're playing in. But nowadays, teams are putting their best receiver in the slot at times. I mean, you watch, um, like, for example, Kyle Shanahan's offense. He puts his like fastest receivers in the slot and gives them a two-way go on safeties because – that's kind of a no brainer. If you have really fast slot guys like Marquise Goodwin, you watch like McVeigh, you know, he's got Cooper cup and he targets him what a hundred and sometimes. And then you watch new England and they're throwing to the slot receivers right and left. So, and, and it really depends and on the new offense England's doing it regard. Like they lose Edelman and they're still throwing to the next one. I mean, yeah, of course. And, part of the offense. and all those guys can play in the slot. I mean, cooks is like the only one that doesn't really play in the slot a ton. And that's well, weird because he so fast. I mean, yeah, yeah and so he good. seemed like a slot receiver coming out of Oregon state. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it's a valuable position just like any other receiver position. It really depends on the skill set of the player. Honestly. I mean, it, it really just comes down to that. And I think Landry is going to be a valuable player for the Browns. Like I said, I don't think I want to try and predict the top three trades I want the Browns to make next unless they, <laughs> unless they follow my very strong advice and trade for Aaron Rodgers. Whatever you want to trade for Aaron Rodgers, I'm on board with that trade. Um, three trades we don't want them to make. Yeah, there's a bunch of those. Top three free agents you want the Browns to grab. Honestly, I've looked at that list. I don't know that there are three that I'm all that excited about. I expect them to sign Terrell Pryor if we're being honest about it. I expect them to make a run at a corner, um, be it Brashad Breland, Brashad Breland, or be mm-hmm. it uh, Tremaine Johnson. I tend to, the way I hear it, I have no idea whether there's veracity to this or not, but the way I hear it is that Johnson isn't all that enthused about the prospect of paying, playing for Greg Williams again. Um, <laughs> maybe throwing money at one of these guys will be sufficient. There's a lot of rumor out there about Breland, um, and I've seen it in a few different places, and so I'm reluctant to point to any one of them. Um, so to me, I, I, I just I struggle to get excited about free agency. Anybody on that list that really gets you, gets you up, in a, up in arms? No, not really. I have the same take as you. I mean, it's the same guys yeah. I've heard about as well, and I don't really see any superstars out there. Here's if Sue was if Sue was yeah. cut, I would be interested in that. Obviously, I, I as like would thirty one other teams or thirty other teams. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. And obviously, whatever quote unquote character concerns might come with Sue are not a problem for this particular regime. Uh, next, <laughs> next Browns coach after Hugh. Well, aren't we making assumptions? Um, I will say Jim Schwartz. I'm going to predict Todd Haley. Yeah, that's a pretty reasonable guess. Yeah. All right. One last question from the mailbag, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. So this is from Mike T at MT Point Guard on Twitter. Your take on what to do with Corey Coleman. I say keep him. Don't want him to be another wrongful poster child example as to why Browns don't win. Yeah, understandable. Injury and poor QB play big factors here. Well, I agree with that last point um, completely. I think bad QB play is part of it. I think um, the, the scheme not playing to the strengths of the various players in it is part of it. And obviously the biggest part of it with Corey Coleman has been he just hasn't been healthy. And whatever else we might think. And I know you and I agree that he's an explosive, talented guy. And so... To me, this comes down to that old Bill Parcells. Well, at least this is where I heard it first, the Bill Parcells thing that, you know, reliability or availability is the best ability, all that stuff. If you're not on the field, you don't matter. And so, to me, the only question about Corey Coleman is, is he going to be on the field? Beyond that, throw in the damn football. Yeah, I agree with you. He's got to stop breaking his hand. Clearly. I mean, it's not like he's had chronic injuries. It's just two weird, fluky, broken hands. But still, you got to be on the field. And that's the only way that you can produce. I say keep him. And and a huge key to that is you're never going to get for him what you put into him to this point. Pete pointed something out on this on the one when I spoke with him earlier today. He's only a couple months older than Calvin Ridley. Oh, yeah. Ridley's older. Yeah. Well, but still. Corey Coleman's going his third year in the NFL. So however old he is, I mean, that it, it, look, 
no, I'm not saying age is some keystone to figuring figuring this all out, but Corey Coleman has done some things on the NFL field that need to be respected. I mean, we, we all saw the negative stuff. We saw him drop that one pass, blah, 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 blah. Mind you, dropping that pass might get you your franchise quarterback, but we'll leave that aside for now. <laughs> um, he gave Jalen Ramsey a good amount of work. Definitely. Which almost no other receiver did. And I, I, I wouldn't want Jalen Ramsey to hear me say that because it would get ugly on Twitter, but I feel like Jalen Ramsey would probably agree that there was some respect due to Corey Coleman. That, I mean it that way, and I mean it extremely respectfully to King Ramsey, should he ever hear this. Jalen, you're my favorite corner. I love you. Um, but I, I can't imagine giving up on that guy yet. Yeah, I agree. It's just, it's like he hasn't really gotten an opportunity to this point because of the injuries and the timing of when they've happened and also the quarterback play. I mean, you can't ignore the, like, if you look at the target reel for this guy, like it's, it's abominable. It's, it's not like, it's not even like with some of the other receivers that they have. It's, it's really bad. I mean, he's jumping, he's diving, he's, reaching away from his body more than he should be comical it's bad yeah it's it's just really bad and i would just love to see him get some chemistry with a decent quarterback and and maybe the best thing for him is to you know if Pryor comes back and he's got that chemistry with Hugh, and maybe you know maybe he comes in and and plays a decent sized role and Corey coleman can maybe go into the shadows a little bit and you know, play a reduced uh, role in the offense, the potentially. If he's healthy, I want him on the field. I'm throwing him the ball. I, I, think he's I better. agree with I you. I think he's a better <clears throat> player. Look, Terrell Pryor. I think he's better than Terrell, Terrell Pryor. I think he's a better yeah. receiver than Terrell Pryor. Now, Terrell Pryor can offer you some things that Corey Coleman can't theoretically offer you, uh, and vice versa is the part I would add to that, and vice versa. Now, I, I do feel like Pryor is going to, Look, let's just go out on the limb here and make the assumption that Pryor's going to be on the team. I, I feel like they're going to rely on Pryor and Landry to block. And Gordon, yeah. big, big, strong, physical dudes. Landry's not that big, but he's a physical blocker, like you mentioned. So I do yeah. feel like they've certainly made it clear that they don't trust Corey Coleman at the very least, right? Yeah, and, and there were times where he would line up, you know, illegal formation penalties. I mean, I, I remember three or four of those from this past year, and that stuff clearly can't happen. Now, I think that's partly on the coaching, but it, it's also on the player as well. I mean, eventually he's got to get it. Like I said, you're not going to get the return for him that, that they've put into him to this point. He's not an expensive player, so I really want to see them hang on to him. And And another thing is, I mean – NFL offenses, it's not like they're running out the same three receivers all the time. You have specialized roles for certain guys. I could see him coming in the game in certain situations and certain packages, and they could play four or five receivers based on what they want to do. So it's good to have versatile, talented, explosive playmakers on your offense, and he's an example of that. So I don't see any reason to get rid of him. And when I said work in the shadows, I just meant more take reduced snaps work on his craft, see how, like, for example, a pro like Jarvis Landry has done it. He seems like a guy who really works at his craft. Maybe that'll help the wide receiver room and the attention to detail that those guys bring to the table. So, um, yeah, definitely I would not give up on Corey Coleman. It, it sounds like they might be ready to do that, but I definitely think that would be a mistake and it would take a pretty big return for me to, uh, to endorse that trade. Yep, I'm with you. Well, we're about an hour and 10 minutes in here. I think that'll cover it for this one. And we're going to be recording again this week. I'm going to make sure I track you down. And we're going to do the case for Sam Darnold. And it'll be an interesting one. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about him uh, in the past few podcasts. And I've had a chance to speak with a few others. Look, I, he's an awfully intriguing prospect. The stuff that he does outside of structure to me is clearly and immediately, obviously special. So the question is really what you think about the rest of it. And I think there's at least a, a fun conversation to be had about it, so I look forward to doing so with you. You got any last notes, man? 
Not really. It was a great time, man. Always enjoy it. As always, I see the bookshelf continues to fill up behind you in the Leicester office, the Leicester football office. It's looking good. Uh, Appreciate it. We'll, we'll, keep, uh, we'll keep building it. All right, brother. Good talking to you. You too, man. Once again, you can find me at FTBL Sickness, the podcast at The Browns Note. Lots more to come this week, including Matt Waldman on Lamar Jackson. Pete Smith is going to talk to us about some of, the, uh, some of the trades, about the offensive and defensive lines, and he will make the, I'm sure, very impassioned case for one Baker Mayfield, the quarterback position. And, uh, and then a special appearance by my old friend, Mr. Sen Sogo. He and I are going to do the case for Josh Rosen together as two extremely biased UCLA Bruins. Uh, We first met as freshmen on that campus. So a lot of good times between that day and this and some good football and some bad football and a lot of quarterbacks. But as UCLA Bruin fans, I think Sen would agree with me that this is clearly the best quarterback they've had since Aikman um, and a guy that's at least worth the discussion at number one overall. So all that and more to come in the weeks leading up to the NFL draft, late April. And of course, we've got free agency this week. So I'm sure we'll be back to talk about a little bit of that as it happens. If anything major happens, I'm sure we'll do some emotional reaction podcasts. Uh, We try to keep it, as it says, uh, reasoned Browns analysis, except for when we're unhinged. So I hope you're enjoying and uh, keep looking because we're keeping, we're going to keep posting. Until next time, go Browns. Woof. <laughs>